Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you, to share the Word of God with you, to open it up and study it. Today we're going to be continuing in our series, uh, our Seek First series, and we're going to be looking today in Matthew 6, if you turn with me in your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be doing a quick roundup of verses 1 through 4, and then launching into verses 19 through 24 as the main emphasis this morning. I've called this message Treasures in Heaven, a pretty simple and straightforward title given what we'll look at. But if you'd stand with me, with Bibles open, in honor of God's Word, let's read together Matthew 6, 1 through 4, and then 19 through 24 before we pray. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And in 19 of the same chapter, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy... Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And lastly, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in reverence. We give you praise, for you even exalt your word above your own name. We thank you that we have the high privilege of looking into your word, and in so doing, we behold your face, we behold your law, we behold your truth, we behold your instruction, and we are edified, we are challenged, we are even rebuked, we are sharpened, and we are appointed once again and reoriented to what matters. We are reoriented to Again, a calling to treasure Christ above all other things. And I ask, Father, this morning that as we look into your word, you would cause us to once again, if we have not done so, to treasure Christ above all else. But to also understand the role of giving as it relates to this treasuring of you. Teach us, Father, from your word now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew 6, we have been studying the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount given to his disciples. And it's important to remember that in all of this, Christ has been affirming the standard of righteousness as given in the law of God, but he is rebuking and correcting the misapplication of that righteousness in the lives, particularly of the religious leaders and in his own disciples. So Jesus, let me say that one more time, Jesus is affirming the law of God in all that is being laid out before us from 5 through 7. He is affirming and says himself he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So he's making and exalting much of the law of God, but he's critiquing the false religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and even potentially in the lives of his own disciples. So in keeping with that theme, we have looked at prayer, we have looked at fasting, and today we're going to be looking at giving. These three elements are uh, means in the Christian's life that God has given us. They're, they're expectations that God has laid before us. And it's in the assumption of Christ, it's the assumption of Christ that his disciples would be praying, fasting, and giving. So let's not miss this. Let's not err in sort of a pendulum swing away from legalism and forget that God expects disciples to be like their Lord. 
and their Lord prays in, in, in this sense with them, with his disciples. They did not fast, and we saw that last week, why that was, for the bridegroom was with them. But then he focuses and orients his disciples towards giving. Now, it's really helpful to remember that the, the Sadducees and Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day were wealthy, wealthy men because they were robbing God. They were manipulating the people of God in Jesus' day uh, for gain. In, in, in modern times, and this is a broad brush figure, uh, these men uh, were multimillionaires, the religious leaders. They were not poor men. They were some of the wealthiest and most elite class in Israel. And Jesus has already warned his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And this is what Jesus is rebuking in all of these chapters. He's rebuking the spirit of hypocrisy that is prevalent not only in his own day, but can so easily and insidiously slip into our lives, causing us to treasure ourselves over Christ. And what Christ seeks to do as he addresses this foundational element of giving is he seeks to correct both our motives and our methods. He seeks to correct both our motives and our methods because these things matter to God. How we give, why we give, these things really matter. In Jesus' words, particularly in 19 through 24, they directly confront the idolatry of his day, which prized self-gratification and materialism over and above God's glory and eternal rewards. An idolatry that is still today the Achilles heel of many professing believers who rob God of glory and ultimately themselves of joy. This is the theme of our message today that we would be confronted with the idolatry that was prevalent in Jesus' day as well as in our own. I found it helpful in studying this. I thought it, it might be beneficial to look up some uh, modern statistics from the Barna Group in regards to surveys that they have done the last couple years regarding overall broad brush giving in the evangelical church. And it's quite interesting. And these are just some statistics I'm going to throw at you. We'll try to make sense of it a little bit, and then we'll move forward from there. But 69% according to the Barna Group, of U.S. adults say that the reasons why they give, again, this is U.S. adults, so this is strictly the evangelical church, 69% say they give because of who they are. They give because of who they are. Now, that sounds rather innocuous on the surface, but 77% of Christians say the same thing, that the reasons, the motivations for their giving is because of who they are. I think this reveals and underlines an approach, even in the church, that giving, by and large, is simply an expression of my own individual identity, not necessarily an action that flows from any robust biblical understanding. So the church at large, again, in broad brush terms, almost 80% of the church would say, according to the Barnett Group, that they give because it's who they are, not because of any compelling reason beyond that. Less than 40% of Christians say that their giving is a result of either discipline, duty, sacrifice, or even intentional planning. So much lower, 40% say that they don't really have a plan for giving. They don't have a rhythm of giving. They don't have a strategy for giving. And they certainly don't view it as a duty or a discipline. 60% of Christians professing say that they give in response to Christ's love. So that's an interesting kind of statistic when you look at what we just looked at, but what kind of erodes that is that less than half of the same number, 42%, set their giving at 10% or more of their income, while 34% say the amount varies. So even though the professing church would say, yes, we give in response to Christ's love, we don't really understand what that should look like. There's, there seems to be an apparent confusion in the broad church at understanding giving. And I think this is well-founded. And yet, interestingly enough, and this is, this is interesting to me, 80%, the highest statistic of all of them, of Christians, of people in the evangelical church, say that the generosity that they express 
is most often the result of it either being modeled to them or taught to them. So you take all these numbers, and if you forget them all, that's okay because they're just numbers. They're, they're barometers on maybe some of the health status of the church in our day. But I find it very fascinating to me that 80% of Christians say that if they give it all, let's just assume they're giving, they're giving usually because it has either been modeled to them, they've been the recipients of generosity, or they have been taught by either their parents, their church family, biblical preaching, etc. So I think that's very hopeful because it shows me as a pastor that many Christians are just simply not being taught how to give, biblically speaking. They're not being challenged how to give uh, in the way that honors Christ and treasures the gospel. They're not uh, really understanding the role of giving in the broader picture of redemption. But yet those that do at all say that it is something that they caught as much as they were taught. So I, I say all this and I give you all these statistics because I believe uh, if maybe that describes you here this morning and you say, well, maybe I give, maybe I don't give. Uh, certainly I would hope that the word today challenges you in regard to your giving, but also that you would have a theological understanding for why giving matters. That it's not just a knee-jerk response because it's what other people say you should do uh, and that you do it out of compulsion or you do it out of a, a sense of guilt, uh, but that you do it from a heart informed by truth and that you do it because you treasure Christ and his kingdom more than your own life. So I think there is hope in even these numbers to reveal that Christ wants to teach his people the beauty and the power of giving. So I hope that our time this morning assists that process. Christ in Matthew 6 has been demonstrating, to get back to the text, the connection between righteousness and rewards. There's a connection between righteousness and rewards here in Matthew 6, between practicing a righteousness that justifies me before men, or in contrast, living out a righteousness that flows from justification with God through Christ. I'm going to say that one more time. Jesus is comparing, contrasting the hypocrites of the religious leaders who practice a righteousness that seeks to be self-justified before men in comparison to the righteousness that he is offering his disciples, which is lived out from justification with God in Christ. And our Lord has been teaching his disciples to, again, as I mentioned, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He even describes them as those who, in Matthew 23, 27, are whitewashed tombs whose insides are literally all dead men's bones. So they have this beautiful religious shell, but internally they're as dead as anything else. They have no life, and they certainly do not have the life of Christ. But Jesus shows us that the rule of life for his disciples is that their hearts would find their alignment with heaven and that what fills heaven would fill and overflow their hearts. Because our righteousness sits enthroned at the right hand of God in the heavens, we need not seek the approval of men as justification, but we seek to imitate our Father like sons and daughters. For context for that, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 48, there, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And all throughout, replete through this chapter, Jesus is saying, Your heavenly Father who is in heaven. So there's this sense in which Christ is seeking sons and daughters to be like their Father. Christ is seeking His church to be givers because God is a giver. God is a giver in we are children of our Heavenly Father who is a giving God. But in contrast, Jesus exposes the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 39, who claimed Abraham as their father, and he says they proved not to be children of Abraham, but children of the devil. So their hypocrisy ran so deep that the Lord himself said, your, your father is not God, and it's certainly not Abraham in the sense of him being uh, a model of faith, your father is Satan. Your father is Satan. But this is not the way of Christ's followers who claim God as their father because he is a giving God and we are to be a giving people. 
The religious leaders, they claim to be sons of the covenant, sons of Abraham, yet their actions demonstrate that they belong to their father, the devil. And I want to spend a little bit of time on this because in Christ we understand that we are not only sons and daughters of our heavenly father, but we have also inherited the covenant promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Covenantal promises that are fulfilled in Christ and flow from Christ as our head to his people, his church. And I found it very beneficial as we've been reading through the word, hopefully most of us as a church, I think, um, through the Bible. We've been kind of looking at the patriarchs. We've been looking at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's such a rich read through the book of Genesis for a plethora of reasons. But in looking at Abraham particularly, uh, in, in just being reminded of how God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and, and sort of out of the blue. I mean, Abraham is living in Haran, uh, his, his father. Terah was going to go to Canaan, didn't get all the way there, ended up settling in Haran, and in Haran, Abraham settled, and God uh, appears to him in Genesis 12 and 1 through 3, and I'll just read it to you. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I mean, this is an absolutely mind-blowing encounter with God. Here's Abraham who is, I mean, essentially a pagan has no former history with God that we have at least recorded. And God appears to him, chooses Abraham out of all the peoples on the earth and says, you, I have decided to set my affection on you and I want you to go from your country, go from your father's house to the land that I haven't even fully revealed to you yet and I'm going to make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. This is really important in understanding how this connects to giving because God in Abraham and ultimately through Abraham all the way to Christ fulfills his covenant promise in Christ, which is in Christ extending his blessing of redemption through his church to the world. Let me say that again. We see that in the covenant with Abraham, God makes a promise that he himself fulfills in Christ Jesus to both create a people who would be blessed of God so that they can be a blessing in the earth and in a salvific way. So we see here that this tremendous promise made to Abraham is that same promise that we inherit in Christ, that we are a people who are blessed to be a blessing. We operate in the world as God's covenant people, not from a position of poverty, but a position and status of blessing and abundance as heirs of God in Christ. And as you go on in Abraham's life, you readily see that he was a man who struggled, struggled mightily in believing and obtaining the promise. But we do see him in Genesis 14 rescuing Lot as the king of Sodom uh, was besieged by some local kings in the area, and Lot in all of Sodom was captured. This is before the destruction of Sodom, of course. Uh, and Abraham goes and rescues Lot. Interestingly, he meets the king of Salem, the priest Melchizedek. And in this meeting, Melchizedek in Genesis 14, 17, you can look it up, says to Abraham, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And it says here, this is the first example in the Bible, the first instance where we see a tithe given. And it says, And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So here is this mysterious priest called Melchizedek, who uh, Hebrews 7 reminds us is, uh, of the same order of Christ. He's not of the Levitical tribe. He's not of the Levites, but he's a priest who it says in Hebrews had no beginning or, or no end. He's a priest forever. It says, it says in Psalm 110, Christ is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And here Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek in ascribing to Abraham the reality that Abraham is blessed of God. 
This is important. And that God, who possesses heaven and earth, has blessed Abraham. And Melchizedek acknowledges this, and he says, Blessed be God, Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So he ascribes the victory of this rescue that Abraham performed for Lot and the, the inhabitants of Sodom as a victory that belonged to God. So again, all of the blessings in our lives as the people of God need to be ascribed to God, for he is the victor. In our giving, as it is with Abraham, in giving a tenth, that's what tithe literally means, a tenth, is an act of worship in response to the victory of God in our life. And that victory, of course, is redemption in Christ, as we'll see more. And in the same section of Genesis 14, 17 through 15, verse 1, the king of Sodom offers to Abraham this sort of this payment, if you would, the spoils of war is what he offers Abraham. But Abraham, interestingly, says, no, I've made an oath with God that you, king of Sodom, could not say that I have made Abraham rich. Abraham here, in a great testing of his heart, defers the riches of Sodom, descriptive of the world, descriptive of the riches of man, and says, no, I want the Lord to be my inheritance. I will not be made rich by the spoils of war because they're not my spoils, they're God's. And I have made an oath before the Lord not to receive this. And uh, interestingly, in the very next chapter, in Genesis 15, 1, God appears to Abraham and he says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So after passing this great test, God comforts Abraham. He appears to Abraham and says, look, you have resisted the spoils of war from the king of Sodom, but I want you to know that you need not fear because I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. And it's the same God that comes to us today and reminds us that we should fear not, for he is our shield and our reward shall be very great. And in the same chapter in verse 6, we have the wonderful statement that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And moving on, and we'll get to the text again in Matthew 6, but just building kind of a theological picture of why we give. Much later on in Genesis 22, God gives Abraham an unbelievable test, asking him to sacrifice Isaac, his child of promise, as a burnt offering. It's mind-blowing. And we could say a lot about this. We don't obviously have time, nor is it the focus. But two points of reference hopefully will be sufficient from this account. And I think two things, namely, that as Abraham obeys, he models a love and a fear for the God who is the giver of all good things and not only a lover of his gifts. As Abraham offers up his pride and joy, he says, in essence, the giver is greater than the gift. The giver is to be feared more than the reward. The giver is to be worshipped greater than even the promise. And this is central to the life of faith. But secondly, and more profoundly, Abraham foreshadows what God himself would do in giving us his son. As, as John the Baptist would say, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. So all this describes a reality in the story of redemption, that God is a giving God, that God himself gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life in John 3.16. And in many other ways, God has given us blessings. We see in Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why do I spend so much time here? Hopefully I haven't lost you. All of this showcases this main truth that the depth and authenticity of my giving as a son and daughter of God will always be proportionate to the depth of my apprehension and wonder at the covenant of grace. 
My theology and practice of giving is only as deep as my appreciation of God's grace. If I have, no, if I have not received grace, I will be a philanthropic pagan. And that's not helpful in building the kingdom of God. Now, God can use the world's money. He often does. But God is not looking for philanthropic pagans. He's looking for sons and daughters who worship in spirit and in truth and who give in response to grace. So we are first receivers, this is foundational, before we are ever givers. We are first receivers before we are ever givers. And all of our giving, if it's motivated by the wonder of grace, abounds in gratitude and joy in God. It abounds in gratitude and joy in God. So we are first receivers before we are ever givers. And this is why Jesus, back in Matthew 6, to come back to our text today, in verse 19, comes at the jugular of idolatry when he says, as we read, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, in verse 19, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Three questions I have for us from this text this morning. The first one is, what do you treasure? Pretty simple. What do you treasure? Jesus here confronts us in our motivations. Our faith will ultimately order our affections, and our affections will feed or starve our faith. I'm going to say that one more time. Our faith is going to ultimately affect and order, orient our affections, our loves, put it more plainly. And our loves will either feed or starve our faith because our hearts are going to follow our treasure always. So if we want our hearts to be happy in God, we must first treasure him and not ourselves. Randy Alcorn has described this as the treasure principle, and I do commend that book to you. Uh, and, and really, this is just a glorious reality because Jesus has pinpointed this great truth that the heart is subservient to what you treasure. The world would sort of say to us, follow your heart and you'll find your treasure. And God says, no, pick your treasure and there you'll find your heart. He sort of inverts it and he says to us, your faith is going to inform your affections. And if you trust God, your giving will follow suit. But if you love and trust and cherish yourself in your life, in your needs, as preeminent and prominent, your giving will follow suit and your faith will starve and your rewards will starve with it. But I thought about this more because there is a sense in here that when you think of laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven, it literally means to deposit treasures in heaven, to, to store in a storehouse like you would go to the bank. I mean, it's literally what it means. Jesus is describing this, this language for spiritual investment, uh, but not in the earth, but in heaven. And he gives both a negative command and a positive command. And I find that very helpful because for every don't, there is a do. And for every... Uh, thing we should flee from, there is a pursuit in like manner. So the antidote for not storing treasures up on earth is, practically speaking, storing treasures up in heaven. For the thing that we should not do, there is a thing we should do. So in other words, for uh, all of our resistance to treasuring ourselves, we should run with equal vigor towards treasuring Christ. So this positive command is, is quite powerful as it relates to our giving. But more than this, in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, we're reminded by Paul to seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. And he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. So to, set our, to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven is to seek the kingdom of God, to seek the place that 
Christ resides, where our life is hidden with Christ and God. And there's some mystery here for sure, but let it not pass us by that we have died in Christ to the elemental things of this world. We have died to the need to justify ourselves. We have died to the need to be our own savior, to be our own security, to be our own provision. And our life now is hidden, is literally stored with Christ in God. And I think this is really uh, profound because when Christ, who is our life, appears, it says, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this language of laying up treasures in heaven and not on earth is to seek the things above, which is, of course, the main emphasis of our series as we are seeking first the kingdom of God. But as it relates to giving, it's really important that we also don't swing too hard to one side of this pendulum because Jesus is not seeking some kind of withdrawal from the world. And we are prone to think this way. He is not looking to simply have uh, a people that are aesthetics, or ascetics rather, excuse me. But we are a people who are redeemed from the world and in the redemption of God in the world, all that he has made and given man in it is to be properly submitted to him. Let me say that again. Jesus is not seeking some kind of withdrawal from the world away from the things of the world. This is kind of where we like trip ourselves up. We say, well, how do I focus on God? How do I seek the things above when, uh, when my whole life is occupied with things below? God is not seeking an asceticism, but a redemption of the world and all that he has made. And he has given man... And he has given it to man to be properly submitted to God so that God can be glorified and our joy in God maximized. I hope that made sense. So do not lay up treasures on earth implies in the first place, notice this, that you have treasures. To not lay up treasures on earth implies that you're first blessed of God with treasure. And you might say, well, I don't feel like I have much treasure. And yet, the whole idea of giving in the kingdom of God is wrapped up with stewardship. It's wrapped up with identifying that God has given us good gifts. As James 1.17 says, and really comes to our aid in this, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So alternatively, to lay up treasure in heaven means that I first must gratefully receive from my Father's hand His good gifts that He has given us in real time and space and steward them in such a way that they maximize our joy and delight in God and bring the things of earth into alignment with heaven's authority. I'm going to say that one more time because I think this is the essence of what Jesus is getting at when He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. We're going to lay up treasures in heaven by first gratefully receiving from our Father's hand His good gifts that He has given us in real time and space, meaning real life, and steward them in such a way that they maximize our joy and delight in God and, following that, bring the things of earth into alignment with heaven's authority. I do believe this is what Jesus means when he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I think this is hugely relevant and important for it exalts the giver without despising his gifts. It exalts the giver without despising his gifts. It puts God as preeminent and his gifts as subordinate. But the delight is in all of it for the glory of God. And we as people of God, if we're going to steward the things that God has given us in our lives... We have to learn to be thankful. We have to be grateful receivers of the things that God has first given us in our lives. And the reality is, in our fallen nature, there's things about our lives that God has put on our plate, God has given us, that we don't like. Things that are difficult. Things that we wish we could kind of like give back to God. God says, no, that's not how it works. I have given you things in your life so that you can redeem it and use it and steward it for my glory. The cycle of giving and receiving is really revealed, I think, in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 12. 
And you can just quickly turn there. Because this highlights that we are enriched by God in every way to be generous in every way. I won't spend a lot of time here for lack of time, but in 2 Corinthians 9, if I can get there. Bear with me one second. Paul is describing how the churches have given lavishly to the Jerusalem church. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 9, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever, quoting Psalm 112. And he says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The promise is that you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For this ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So this ministry of giving is not merely a pragmatic thing because we all need money. And it's not pragmatic in the sense that God in and of itself needs our money. For God, of course, seeks our heart. But in giving God our money, in giving God our time, in giving God our gifts, and ultimately and entirely really giving God our very life as an offering on the altar, God promises to enrich us in every way, to be generous in every way, so that through it all it will produce thanksgiving and glory for God. So the stakes are much higher than merely a pragmatic means to an end. Our giving is powerful. Our giving is eternal because we first must give ourselves to God before we can give anything to God. And in our lives, Jesus calls us uh, to make much of that which he has given us. We see this exemplified in the uh, parables of the talents. We see this, and we won't spend much time. I encourage you to look it up in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, I believe, where Jesus commends those servants who were given talents and multiplied them, made much of them, but to the one who buried his talent in the sand because he knew his master was a hard man. If you know the story, God rebukes him and says, you should have at least put it in the bank so that it gathered interest. And he took his talent away. And he says, for those who are faithful and little will be faithful in much and be given much. Excuse me, those who are faithful and little will be given much, but those who are not faithful in anything, what they have will even be taken away. This is a reality in giving that need not be overlooked, that God expects us to steward the things that belong to him in our lives. And in doing that, we are charged to be a faithful people. Even the little bit that we have, all of our means vary. All of our capacities are different. But in what we have been given, we are charged to be faithful. And I love the story of the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus is challenging his disciples to feed this multitude. And they say to him, we don't have enough. Like, are you crazy? And they find this boy who had a lunch, a, a, a meager lunch. But what do they do? They, they give it to God. God blesses it. He breaks it. And he multiplies it. And this is the mystery of giving. This is what only God can do with what we give him. That as we give God our meager portion, he multiplies it into something that we could never do. He takes it. He gives thanks to his father for it there in in the story. He breaks it and he passes it out. And when we give ourselves to God, God will do with us the same thing. He gives thanks that we would give ourselves to him. But it's really our reasonable worship, as Romans 12 reminds us. And he will often break us. 
of our pride and our self-sufficiency and our treasuring of our own selves. And then as he does that, he will give us out because we're an extension of his son. And he will multiply our giving and he will multiply the seed of our sowing and he will multiply the harvest of our righteousness. So this leads us to our second challenge here in the text in verse 22 because there's an enemy of all of this. And he says in 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So we first saw what is your treasure. Now we see how is your vision? How is your vision? Jesus, Jesus shows us that a further influence upon our ability to store up treasures in heaven relies upon the clarity of our vision, the clarity of our vision. And the word for healthy eye or the eye is healthy means to have a sincere and singular vision, a sincere and singular vision, to not be seeing double in, in, in the metaphor to not being double-minded and as a result unstable in all your ways. So Christ puts his finger on the pulse of what opposes this kind of generosity in the Christian's life and he says, how is your vision? And even what is your vision? And really, how big is your vision? Because if your vision is not in alignment with God, then you see things only from an earthly view. You see things only from your view. And most likely, you'll have a double vision. You'll have an equilibrium that isn't balanced. You'll see things not as they are, but as your double-mindedness causes you to see them. And you'll be unstable in all of your ways, as James reminds us, uh, not receiving anything from God, being a double-minded man. And this is a, a sincere danger for Christ's followers, that our vision would be hindered by our appetites. Our vision would be hindered by our love for this world. So Jesus is pointing out that it's imperative that we keep our vision singular, that we keep our hearts in alignment with heaven. But it's contrasted here in the text. The healthy eye is contrasted with, of course, an evil eye. So what does that mean? An evil eye is a wandering eye due to covetousness and greed. So here is the real threat to our double-mindedness is covetousness and greed, which, of course, marked the Pharisees, marked the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were a jealous, covetous people, bent on greed, bent on their own appetites. And we say, man, I'm so glad I'm not like the religious leaders. But yet in all of us, we see a propensity, a proclivity even, to having an evil eye. And what does that mean? It means certainly no less than having a covetous, close-handed, stingy, and self-protective spirit, viewing God and his mission in the world with demonic suspicion, with demonic suspicion. And we see this uh, fleshed out in Matthew 20, verse 15, where Jesus comes to collect, uh, or to, to pay, rather, his laborers who he hired at all different points in the day to go into his vineyard. And to the last laborer, the, it says in, in verse 15 that, uh, he was unhappy with how charitable God treated all of his laborers, and he seemed to have differing scales. He would hire them all at the same price, and some would work eight hours, and some would work 30 minutes. And he said, this isn't right. And God says, do you begrudge my generosity? And this can be the spirit of servants of God if we are not careful. If if we buy into the lie that God is not good, if we have a false view of God, a low view of God, and a high view of ourselves, we can, we can think to ourselves, God is not equitable. God is not fair. And even worse, God is out to hurt me. God is out to damage me. And we begin to be a people that sort of turn inward, and we become close-handed. We become suspicious of trusting God. We become suspicious of giving ourselves to God. We become a people who are influenced not by the Holy Spirit, but by a demonic suspicion that God is up to no good. And you say, man, that could never be me. But yet this is ultimately the path to apostasy. This is a pathway to outer darkness, not just deep darkness. Jesus makes this plain when he says, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is 
is the darkness, meaning that if the light that you have been given, you have turned into darkness, how deep is that darkness? And if you have rejected the light that God has given you, the revelation of himself and all of his goodness and all of his grace and all of his mercy, and you have turned that image of God, that revelation of God into something that it is not, and you have corrupted your view of God in your own heart, that is a darkness that we should flee from. That is a darkness that we should run from. Because ultimately, ultimately my view of God is going to drive my practice in giving. So sound theology drives the vehicle of our generosity. So if I have a high view of myself and a low view of God, I will never lay up treasures in heaven, but I will seek to save my life instead of give it away for his glory. So my contentment in God flows from a view that everything I have comes from his hand. And we'll wrap this thing up here. Lastly, by asking the question in verse 24, who is your master? Who is your master? If we are going to fight to keep our vision singular and our worship true, we must fight covetousness with Christ. We exalt in grace instead of merit, and we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And Jesus promises and makes plain here that you cannot endure in a double-minded place because you are either growing in love for Christ and wholehearted devotion, or you are in the process of leaving Christ. You are either growing in love for Christ or you're in the process of leaving Christ. There's no neutrality in the Christian life. And Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You cannot have two kings. You cannot have two gods. You cannot have a double-minded life, a double-minded way, uh, for you will be ineffective in carrying out both the mission of God and the grace of God to those in your life. So we must first give ourselves to Christ before we can participate in the joy of building his kingdom. But how can we give what we don't possess? And here we see the need to ultimately give ourselves to God to choose to treasure Christ above all other things. For a double-minded man, again, James says, is unstable in all his ways. But as we close... Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll close here. In 1 Timothy 6, we have a very famous passage on both biblical contentment as Timothy is charged by Paul, and we pick it up in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 6. He says, But godliness, is, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire or aspire, crave to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, it is through this craving, the love of money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But again, for every negative commandment, there's a positive one. He says, but as for you, and this is to us, church, O man of God, flee these things. But in your fleeing, if you're running from something, you're running to something else. Pursue righteousness godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So we have something to pursue, a faith worthy of our fight, and something to take hold of. And these three imperatives guide, really, our giving in many practical ways. But he says... Again, in 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ 
which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor in eternal dominion. I pray that this is your prayer with me this morning. But then he admonishes very directly the rich. For the rich in themselves are not evil. But he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. When we become givers, we treasure the gospel. We make the gospel our very life. And in so doing, we find that when we lose our life for Christ's sake, we gain it. And this is the exhortation to those who have a little and to those who have a lot to say, put your hope in God. Store up treasure in heaven, for it's a good foundation for the future. And as you do that, you are taking hold of that, which is truly life. For Jesus says, is not the body more than clothing and life more than food? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us in Christ. We thank you that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in keeping with your covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have blessed us salvifically so that we can be a blessing through the gospel in the earth. And our giving is a response to what we have first received. So I pray that we would be a people who first gladly receive your gifts, exalt you for them, glory in them in true worship, but never forget that the giver is greater than the gift. And that in all of our giving, we would have a properly ordered affection we would thank you for your kindness, but also give generously, give faithfully, give intentionally, and be a people marked by the freedom that the gospel brings. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.